Well, good morning. It's great to see you. I want to take a moment again to welcome you to church. And if you do have a Bible and you have your journals, grab them out. Head to John chapter 1 with me, if you will. We are in week five of our study on the Gospel of John. And last week, I took just a moment to point out this pattern that emerges in the opening chapter. All right, John starts his gospel by talking about Jesus the Word, and then he goes to this guy, John the Witness, and then he's back to Jesus the Word, and then he goes to John the Witness, and guess who we're going to talk about today? All right, Jesus the Word. I like the confidence. I kind of teed you up last week, right, to get that right. So, yeah, we're talking about Jesus the Word, and we're actually going to see what John the Witness says about Jesus the Word. And here's what I want to tell you, okay? If you can take hold of what John says about Jesus, your life will never be the same. I promise you. I'm not talking about you giving a nod to what John says about Jesus or you intellectually agreeing with what he says. I mean, if you can take hold of this at a soul level, your life will never be the same. And so we're going to dive in and get to work. All right, we have a lot to cover, so we will waste no time. Verse 29 is where we're going to pick it up. The next day, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a great statement. We're going to stop there and and unpack this for a few moments, but John tells us that this happened the next day, And, and if you're wondering, well, what happened the previous day, go back and either watch or listen to last week's sermon. Okay, we answered last weekend, I know it was Labor Day weekend, so maybe some of us weren't here, but we answered one of the most important questions that can ever be asked. Who are you? Who are you? And this was the very question that John the Baptist was asked by the religious leaders of his day, John, who are you? And so the day after answering their question, this takes place, what we're reading about today. He looks up and he sees Jesus coming toward him. And I love this picture because it serves as a great reminder that our Savior moves towards sinners, right? He doesn't avoid sinners, praise God, and he doesn't ask sinners to move toward him, even if he did. We couldn't apart from him. No one seeks God is what Romans 3 says, but instead, Jesus Christ moves toward sinners, and this is the good news of the gospel, right? That God chose us, that God loved first, that he initiated this relationship, And we saw it in a fascinating way just a few weeks ago when we talked about the incarnation, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, put on flesh, and he came here to dwell among us, all to do for us what we could never do on our own. Like by his life, death, resurrection, saved us out of sin, death, and hell forever. And so his pursuit of us now informs the way we pursue other people. If you've ever wondered, well, why does Cross Point exist? To relentlessly pursue those far from God to help them know and follow Jesus. This is why we want to do for other sinners what Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen? So he looks up and he sees Jesus coming toward him and he says, behold. Behold. And he doesn't just rush into it. There's a comma there in the text if you notice. So this should be a pause moment. He's like, everybody, I want you to just stop and look and take notice. Do you see that guy Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And with this statement, he's doing two things. Number one, he's telling us who Jesus is. And number two, he's telling us what Jesus does. And so we're going to spend a moment and just unpack this. Number one, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus, according to John the Baptist, is the Lamb of God. All throughout the Old Testament, you find lamb imagery. 
And all of that lamb imagery is meant to point us forward to Jesus Christ. See, I don't know if you know this, and I want to just stop and make sure you do. This entire book is about one person, and his name is Jesus. Like, I don't want to hurt your feelings today, but maybe I'll hurt your feelings. This book ain't about you. It's not. It's for you, but it is not about you. It is about Jesus, not just the New Testament portion, but the whole thing. Genesis to Revelation, this entire book centers on one man. It points to one man. It culminates in one man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, again, when you see all that lamb imagery in the Old Testament, your mind is meant to go to him. And I'll give you a few examples, okay? Genesis 22, we see there a substitutionary lamb. This is the insane story of God coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. That, that son, the promised son, Isaac, whom I gave you to fulfill all of my promises to you, promises to bless you, to make you the father of a great nation, to bless all the nations and families of the earth through you, I want that son. And instead of putting up a fight, Abraham gets his son and he goes to this place of sacrifice. Why? Because he was a man of faith. And he believes so deeply in the character of God and the promises of God that he just concluded, even if God lets me go through with this, he'll just raise my son up from the dead because God's not going to lie to me. And so he gets there, and he's ready to perform the sacrifice. And at the very last minute, the angel of the Lord shows up, and he's like, hey, crazy old man, drop the knife. And so he puts it down, and then he looks over, and he sees this ram caught in a thicket by its horns, and so it is literally wearing a crown of thorns. And Abraham goes and he gets this ram, this male sheep, this male lamb, and he sacrifices that as a substitute in the place of Isaac so that Isaac can go free. Are you starting to see it just a bit? Okay, if not, let me give you another example. Exodus 12, the Passover lamb. After spending over 400 years in slavery in the nation of Egypt, God decided to do something to get his people, the nation of Israel, out of there. Uh, Raised up this deliverer named Moses, and then he started sending plagues on the land to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And the very last plague was the plague of the death of the firstborn son. And so God comes to his people, and he's like, look, here's what I need you to do. Everybody take a lamb, and I want you to kill the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your homes. And then God swept through the land of Egypt, killing all the firstborn of the Egyptians. But he saved those whose blood was on the doorpost of the houses. Literally passed over their homes, sparing the firstborn from death. You're starting to see it just a little bit. Okay, I'll give you one more example. Isaiah 53, what we find there is a slaughtered lamb. And Isaiah 53 is one of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, all written about Jesus, God's coming Messiah, God's coming Savior. And we're told in Isaiah 53, verse 7, 700 years, by the way, before Jesus Christ was ever born into the world, that he would be led away like a lamb to the slaughter. That he would go on to bear the iniquities of his people. And so here's the simple point. That is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the slaughtered lamb who died as a substitute for his people and instead of his people so that his people might be set free from spiritual death and slavery. And then, praise God, we get to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and Jesus is the great warrior lamb. He's the lamb there that we see that, that appears as it was slain but had since been resurrected. 
And this lamb right now in present time, Jesus Christ, is receiving honor and glory and praise as he's seated on the throne of heaven. And one day he is returning to crush his enemies and set all things right again. This is Jesus Christ. He is the lamb of God. Now, secondly, what does he do? He takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. As I've explained many times in the past, sin by definition is so much more than the bad things that you do. See, sin is when you ignore God in the world that he made. It's when you do what Adam and Eve did all the way back in Genesis 3 when sin first entered the world. You as a created being poke your chest out at the creator God and you declare to him, I'm going to do me. Like, I know that the world and everything in it belongs to you, but I'm going to live my life how I want to live my life. And we're all guilty of that, aren't we? Like, we've all done that at times. Come on, let's be honest. Some of us did, uh, some of us did that, like, on the way to church this morning. We're all guilty of that. And because we've all sinned, now we all deal with the consequences of sin. Things like broken relationships, Stress at work, frustration in marriage, injustice, poverty, suffering, disease. But the greatest consequence of sin that we all face and deal with is this little thing called death. And I'm not just talking physical death. I'm also talking spiritual death, which means eternal separation from God. And the worst news is there's nothing you can do about that. Like Paul says it in Ephesians 2, you are spiritually dead which means that you are helpless and hopeless in every way to change your spiritual condition. I mean, anybody ever seen a dead person do anything? Except lay in that box and just look right, right, like dead? Anybody seen a dead person do anything? Why? Because dead people can't do anything to change their condition. And as a spiritually dead person, the same is true when it comes to you and God, which is why you need someone to take your sin away. See, in other words, you need someone outside of you to do for you what you cannot do on your own, and that someone is Jesus Christ himself. And the way he does this is by his own sacrifice. Okay, we talked just a few weeks ago, and if you weren't here, you can go back and find the sermon about God giving his people the law in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. 613 laws in total, some moral, some civil, some ceremonial And in addition to giving the law, which really outlined his way of life for them, he also instituted the sacrificial system because he knew those heathen people are not going to keep all those laws all the time. And so he made this incredible provision. Hey, when you sin, you can sacrifice something in your place. Like instead of you dying, something can die for you. You can kill an animal, you can shed its blood, and the shedding of its blood will provide atonement for your sin. And so this was an act of of God's grace toward the nation of Israel. Here was the problem, though. That atonement was temporary. Like when you killed a lamb or a bird or whatever it was you were sacrificing, your sins were forgiven, yes, temporarily, not permanently, and so you had to keep bringing sacrifices over and over and over and over again. But the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was different. I wanna show it to you, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
All right, I, I know it's still early in the morning. Some of us are still sipping on our coffee, but I just want to make sure you're paying attention, okay? I want you to look, and you can cheat, okay? We're, we're fine if you cheat in church. You can look back at your Bibles. I want you to notice where the priest is versus where Christ is, okay? Look at the text. Where is the priest? Where is he? Standing. He is on his feet, doing his temple work. Offering, sacrifice, after sacrifice, after sacrifice. You see, the priest, when he was at work in the temple, he never sat down. Because there was always more work to do, always another sacrifice to make. Okay, look back at the text. Where's Christ? Seated. Jesus went 2,000 years ago and made a sacrifice, a single sacrifice. And then after performing that sacrifice, took a seat at the right hand of God in this position of power and authority. And do you know why Christ is seated? Because there's no work left to do. All the work necessary to save sinners like you and me has been accomplished. And so there's Jesus just sitting down so that you and I would know we don't have to help him. Like there's nothing on our backs. Like there's no work left to be done. One sacrifice to take away all sin, and John says it is the sin of the world. Here's what Jesus did for you, and I want you to catch this. When he went to the cross, he became your sin, number one. So all the worst parts of who you are were transferred onto him. And after becoming your sin, he paid for your sin, took every bit of God's wrath and judgment you deserved, and he did it to free you from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day, praise God, the presence of sin. Amen? This is why we don't bring sacrifices to church anymore, y'all. Like, did anybody pack up a lamb or a bird or something on the way? And bring? Like, if that's in your car, you can just take it home because we don't need it. Like, Jesus has taken care of all that for you. One sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. And here's what that means practically. Anyone can be saved. Anyone. It does not mean that everyone is saved. Okay, John's not promoting universalism here, this idea that because Jesus did what he did, uh, everybody's in, regardless of whether or not they trust or believe in him. The problem with that belief is the Bible. Like The Bible's very clear. You, You want in, you have to believe. You want in, you have to exercise faith in the one who gave his life for you. John's just saying here, Jesus Christ saves without distinction, which is great, great news for us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your sin. Jesus Christ can and will take it away if you believe in him. Now, John keeps going, verse 30. Everybody doing okay, by the way? Okay, y'all a little quiet this morning here in Cartersville. Maybe Roman Adairsville, y'all are getting a little bit more worked up, so I'm just making sure, all right? But verse 30... Verse 30, John keeps going, and he says, next of Jesus, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to that. And then he concludes, and I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so John in verse 30 repeats what we covered a couple weeks ago in verse 15, this idea that first place is the best place. And he just applies that truth to Jesus. And he says yet again, Look, I came first, 
I came first technically. He came after me, but he ranks before me because he was before me. So I know that I showed up on the scene first, but the truth is he's greater than me because he existed long, long before me. And so he's pointing us yet again to the eternality of Jesus Christ or the pre-existence of Jesus, that he is the eternal son of God. This is something that is unique to Christianity. We believe that Jesus Christ has always been and will always be, that he was not part of creation. He was present at creation. Right in the beginning was the word, and he was with God, and he was God, and he made all things, and nothing that was made would have been made apart from him. This is who he is. And John in the text says, I came to make that guy known. God sent me in the world to prepare the world for him. And then he makes this statement, but I didn't know it was him. Like, I came to get people ready for him, but I didn't know it was him. And here's what's so crazy about that in my mind. These dudes were cousins. Right? I mean, you see in Luke 1 that their moms, Mary and Elizabeth, who were related in some way, they were actually pregnant with them at the same time, and so they were around the same age. My point is this, John and Jesus grew up together. I grew up with cousins, maybe you grew up with cousins, and growing up with cousins, like, I mean, y'all are there at all the family functions, playing ball in the yard, throwing down on Thanksgiving dinner, opening Christmas presents together. So think about this. John and Jesus probably ran around a lot together growing up, and the whole time John the Baptist, he's going, I didn't know it was him. I had no idea it was him, and part of me wonders if maybe he thought it could have been him. I mean, you always know when there's something different about a person, right? And I just wonder if John ever looked at Jesus and like, I don't know, man. I mean, he seems kind of perfect. Never seen him sin or lose his temper or talk back to mom and dad. And he's going, I had no idea it was him. Yet, here he is getting people ready for him. Again, do you know what that is called? That's called faith. Okay, just lean in and, and catch this. Faith is when you trust so deeply in the character of God and the word of God that you're willing to obey God even when things aren't entirely clear. It is when you trust so deeply in the character of God and the word of God that you're willing to obey God even when things aren't entirely clear. Think about how easy it would have been for John to say to God, God, of course I'll get people ready for him if you tell me who he is. Who's this him that you're talking about? God, you want me to move to the desert and you want me to eat bugs and honey and you want me to baptize people, which that's kind of new and weird, and you want me to tell him that he's here. Well, if you just tell me who he is, I'll do all that. Could have said that, but he didn't. He said, God, of, of course I'll go. God, if you're telling me that the kingdom has arrived and the king is here, I don't need to know who he is. I'll move out there. I'll baptize folks. I'll get people ready for his coming. And that is what he did. And through John's obedience, listen, revelation came. And I want you to know this is oftentimes how obedience and revelation works. Okay, obedience doesn't typically uh, come after revelation, revelation comes before, or, or excuse me, I'm getting it backwards. Let me start, rewind, okay. <laughs> Obedience precedes revelation. Let me say it that way. So it's not typically that you get revelation and then you obey, it's that you obey and then the revelation comes. You see, if you had all the details on the front end, that would be faith. That would be sight, and I would argue that sight is the enemy of faith. If you need to see it before you can act on it, you are not trusting God. In my experience, I have found, and I believe this is biblical, 
that if you want revelation, you have to take steps of obedience first. Okay, for example, 10 years ago when I came here, that was my experience to be the pastor of this church. Uh, Before coming here, I had wrestled with God for two years, two years over his calling on my life. I had done 10 years of student ministry, and I was a guy that thought I was going to do student ministry forever, and then God showed up and jacked all that up and really started bending my heart towards pastoral ministry, and after wrestling with God for a long season, I became convinced, 100% convinced, God is calling me to pastor a church, and I thought I was going to go plant a church, and so my wife and I are making plans to do that. And in the middle of all that planning, I got asked to come here to pastor this church. And it was a quick no for me. Because at the time, this church was part of another church. It had gone through this major crisis season. And so that that was part of the no, right? Like, I don't know who wants to do that, but I want to go clean that mess up. But then in addition, the church that started this church had basically taken the church back in and made it a location or a campus. And I'm like, no, that's not what God's calling me to. So I'm, I'm out on that. And the guy who asked me to come, the pastor of the church where I was serving at the time, he said, just pray about it for a couple weeks. I was like, all right, whatever, I'll do it. And I did. And at the end of those two weeks, God was calling my wife and I to come here. I was like, hold on, God. Like, we just sorted this out over the course of two years. Like, I I did business with you to make sure that I was on the right track. And, And God, this whole time, I feel like you're calling me to pastor a church and maybe plant a church, not to pastor a church within a church. And here's God going, but I need you to go. So we did, and I didn't want to, straight up. Like I said, yes, not knowing why and not wanting to say yes. And then a year later, my pastor comes back to me and he says, hey, we want to turn you guys loose to be your own church again. And then it all made sense. Like, oh, that's what God was trying to do this time. And so, again, my point is this. If you are someone in the room who knows what God wants you to do, yet instead of obeying, you're sitting around waiting on a revelation to come. You need to stop waiting and you need to start obeying. Because through your obedience, God will start to reveal the details to you. He revealed it to John. Revelation came through his obedience. He's out in the desert and he's just baptizing folks. And then one day, guess who shows up to be baptized? Yeah, this guy by the name of Jesus. John's cousin goes out to the desert, and he says, hey, John, I need you to baptize me. And John's like, "Mm, I'm pretty sure I need you to baptize me. (laughs) And they have this back and forth, and then John finally consents. He's like, okay, I'll do it. And he baptizes Jesus Christ, the Savior, the King, the Messiah of the world. And as he is coming up out of the water, John looks up and he sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove, okay? Uh, The Holy Spirit is not a dove, but he sees him descending like a dove, and he remains on Jesus, which was something very different than what had taken place prior. Like, in the Old Testament, you see the Spirit of God coming and going. He would come on people for a purpose and for a specific period of time, and then he would leave, but the Holy Spirit comes and he remains on Jesus, and then God the Father speaks. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so at the baptism of Jesus, we see the Trinity yet again. One God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all there, and John says in our passage, that's how I knew it was him. The one who sent me, God the Father, told me that the one on whom the Spirit descended and remained, that's the guy I'm getting people ready for. And then he mentions this other thing that Jesus does. 
He says that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, last week I told you that in the New Testament we see two types of baptism. First, there is water baptism, which is the outward sign of faith and repentance. Right, you get dunked in water, that does nothing to save you, just gets you wet, but it is your public profession that you have been saved, okay? We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not a result of works, and baptism at the end of the day is a work. It's an act of obedience. And so we climb in that tub to identify ourselves with Christ, to declare publicly that the old us has died with him, the new us is alive in him, and we are now following him as Lord and King. That's water baptism, Spirit baptism is the second type of baptism, and this is actually part of the new covenant that God promised to make with his people. If you want to read about it, you can find it in these Old Testament passages, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, and I just want to unpack it for a moment. This is fascinating. Okay, under the old covenant, God gave the law, talk about that, 613 laws, for his people so that they would know how to live in the land he was giving them, all written on stone tablets, by the way. Uh, in addition, he gave the sacrificial system so that they could seek his forgiveness when they broke the law. And then he gave the priesthood, these men, to mediate the relationship between God and Israel. Because as a sinful person, you can't come to God on your own terms. you got to come on his terms. And so the priests were there to make sure that happened. That was the old covenant. Under the new covenant, though, God said this. I'm going to give you new hearts. And on those new hearts, I'm going to write my law. And so the law is not going to exist outside of you. I'm going to put it in you now. God also says we're going to deal with sin once and for all. I'm going to forgive you not temporarily but permanently, and I will remember your sins no more. And then finally he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to put my spirit in you. My spirit is going to come and indwell you, live inside of you as my people. And that promise is the promise of spirit baptism. And so to make greater sense of that baptism, I want to take just a couple moments to talk about the Holy Spirit. I felt that it was important for us to do this today because this is actually the first mention in John's gospel of the Spirit. We're going to talk about him in much greater detail when we get to John 14 and 16, the upper room discourse, because John has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit there. Jesus has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit, I should say. But I don't know what your experience was like growing up. Um, I was a church kid. And I grew up in a church that never really talked about the Holy Spirit. And if you ever did come up, it was always with a word of caution. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa be careful. Be careful with the Holy Spirit stuff because we don't want to be those people. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like the, those people who do all the really weird stuff and blame it on the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be those people. So we just didn't really talk about the things of the Spirit. And honestly, I thought of the Holy Spirit as a church kid uh, a lot like the drunk uncle who would show up at the family reunion and wreck the party. That's how I thought about it. I just want to keep my distance, okay? And it wasn't until my 20s that I really started to understand who the Spirit is and my need for him. You see, here's the truth. Look, listen. The Christian life is impossible without the Holy Spirit. Like, you cannot follow Jesus Christ without the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit actively at work in your life. And so you need to know who he is, and you need to know your need for him. So let me give you some things to note. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a power. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a power. Let me say it like this. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. I hear people regularly calling the Holy Spirit an it. 
as if he is just some kind of force. And if you call the Holy Spirit in it, stop it, all right? He's a he. He is a person, and because he is a person, you are meant to be in relationship with him. And without that relationship, you cannot be who God created you to be. Which brings me to his work, okay? Number one, the Spirit of God reveals Jesus. And this is what we see so clearly in the text. How did John figure out the truth about Jesus? The Spirit of God revealed it to him. Look at me. How did you figure it out about Jesus if you know him? How did you figure it out? The Holy Spirit revealed it to you. You didn't just figure it out on your own. Well, the Spirit of God took the blinders off your eyes so that you can see Jesus. How do other people figure out the truth about Jesus? The Holy Spirit of God reveals it to him. This work belongs to him. But in addition, he also empowers us for the work of ministry. I love this. The Spirit of God gives us spiritual gifts, gifts that we don't naturally possess on our own so that we can serve people and help to build God's church. He gives us the ability and the power to kill sin. Like, do you know as a believer in Christ, it's not about sin management? Some of us need to hear this, man, because like sin is killing you, and sin is killing you because you're not killing it, and it's because you're trying to do your best to manage it, and that's not ever how God intended it to be. He intended you to walk in the power of the Spirit, and he gives you the power to put your sin to death. He does this for you. In addition, he also sanctifies you. This is one of his works. Sanctification is this process and all of you impatient people need to just take hold of that word. It is a process, okay? And it is lifelong. It starts the moment you put your faith in Christ as Savior, and it does not stop until the moment you see him in eternity. It is a lifelong process in which the Spirit of God is working to make you more and more like Jesus. You do not make you more like Jesus. You engage in spiritual disciplines to open your life up to the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God makes you more like Jesus. You don't come to church and read your Bible and serve and pray and fast and do all those things because that's what good Christians do. You do those things to put your life before the Spirit of God so that he can make you more like your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He does that in your life. And listen, he does it so that you can bear witness about Jesus in this world. His goal is to make you more like him so that you can bear witness about him in his world. And according to what the scriptures teach, listen, that is the purpose of spirit baptism. The purpose of spirit baptism is power. It's power. Power to be witnesses for Christ in this dark and dying world. And I'll make my case, okay? You see it in Acts chapter 1 very clearly. Uh, verses 4 and 5, Jesus, he's risen from the dead and he's given his disciples the great commission. I want you to go into all the world, make other disciples. And then in Acts 1, he says, but don't go yet. Because you don't have the power you need to do that. He says, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem. And in not many days from now, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then just a few verses later in verse 8, he says to them, oh, and by the way, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then you get to chapter two, and you see the power, okay? The disciples wait, they're just all hanging out, about 10 days go by, and they're all gathered in this, this house together, and God pours his spirit out. 
here comes the fulfillment of the new covenant promise, right? The spirit of God comes and this sound like a mighty rushing wind blows through the house. These little things that look like tongues of fire, they start to fall. And then the disciples all start speaking in other languages. This big crowd gathers. Peter stands up, preaches the gospel. 3,000 people get saved and baptized all in one day and the church of Jesus Christ is born. Power. The purpose of this baptism is power, and this is why we need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, so that we can live out the very mission of Jesus Christ. Like, you and I need power to be witnesses for him, to get the gospel to people and places who need it, and the Spirit of God gives us that power, and Jesus Christ is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, which raises the next question, well, when does all that happen? Uh, the famous question that often, often gets asked about baptism of the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit is does it happen at salvation or subsequent to salvation? And look, if you want to hear more on this, I've preached entire sermons on spirit baptism. You can go to the website and just search for it. I don't have time to get into all the disagreements today, so I'm just going to share with you what I believe based on what the scriptures teach, okay? When does it happen? At salvation or subsequent to salvation? And my answer would be yes. Yes, and all of you aren't gonna agree with that right away, but just stick with me and let me make my case, okay? At salvation, we are obviously baptized with the Holy Spirit. Like in the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he immerses you in the Spirit, you are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of God indwells you, and he baptizes you into the church of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And so it's not like you get saved and you get the Spirit later, Okay? Paul teaches this in Romans 8 9. If you don't have the Spirit of God then, or the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. So there's no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. In the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you get all of the Spirit, not just some of Him, you get every bit of Him that you're ever going to get. But here's the problem the Holy Spirit doesn't always have all of us. You tracking with me? Like, come on, man, we don't always yield to Him each and every day, do we? We're not always fully surrendered to him every aspect of our lives. We're not always walking in step with the spirit of God, going where he wants to take us, doing the things he wants us to do. This is why some of us struggle in our Christian lives. Like we are walking through life and we're trying to operate in our own power instead of his power. And so we're in a bit of survival mode right now. He doesn't always have all of us. And if that's you or that sounds familiar to you at all, here's what I would say. What you need is for Jesus Christ to immerse you with the Holy Spirit. Here's what's so interesting when you read the book of Acts. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, describes baptism as a filling. Okay, again, you see it in Acts 1 and Acts 2. Jesus says, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 2, 4, when the Spirit of God comes and he's poured out, the disciples are said to be filled. And so when I see that language, and this is the pattern you see as you keep reading, these men who were baptized and filled on the day of Pentecost, they're filled again and again and again and again and again, all for the sake of mission and ministry. And so when I see those words, it seems to me, and I could be wrong on this, but it seems to me that Luke is using them interchangeably. Or at the very least, that one serves the other. The illustration that I've used in the past is of someone dipping a bucket in the ocean. 
If you go out and you dip a little sand bucket in the ocean, is that bucket immersed or is it filled? Y'all confused? It's a very easy, yeah. You go, yeah, both. If you dip that thing in there, it is baptized and filled. It is immersed and it is full. And so again, the way that I see it to be baptized is to be filled and to be filled is to be baptized. And if you're confused by that or if you're going, James, I don't think I agree with you, let me just be as clear as I can possibly be with my semantics and I think we can all agree on this, okay? At salvation, we are baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, amen? Can we all agree? Yes, okay. After salvation, we are to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think we can agree on that. And if you're going, I, I don't agree, well, you disagree with the Bible because Paul says it in Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine. That's debauchery. If you want to know our stance on alcohol, that's it. Don't get drunk. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That word filled there is in the present tense, which implies ongoing action. And so this is you and I seeking to be continually filled with him each and every day. And to do that, I would give you two pieces of advice. Number one, you need to be aware of the Spirit's presence in your life. This is where it starts. You gotta know that he's there. In Acts 19, Paul shows up in the city of Ephesus and he asks this great question. Hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And these people in Ephesus go, uh, Holy Spirit? We know nothing about this Holy Spirit. And maybe that's true for some of y'all. Maybe you've been around church for a long time. You know a lot about Jesus. You believed in Jesus, but you are very unaware of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to say the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. And he is there to give you power to be who God has created you and saved you to be. And if you want to be filled with him, you have to be aware of him. That's where it starts. But then secondly, you have to ask for his power every single day. And if you're anything like me, you got to ask for his power all throughout the day. Not just once, but like. A lot of moments throughout the day. And I just wonder, like, when's the last time you've done that? When's the last time you climbed out of bed and your feet hit the floor and the first thing out of your mouth was, Holy Spirit of God, give me power today. Power to be a witness for Christ. Like, students, when's the last time on the bus or on your drive to school you just cried out, Jesus, would you immerse me, fill me with the Spirit? Because I'm about to go to school with a bunch of heathens who need to know you, and I can't show them who you are without your power at work in my life, and so empower me today. When is the last time on your way to work you prayed that prayer? God, I'm struggling. You know my coworkers, and I don't really fit in here, and we don't get along all that well, and I need some power today to make Jesus Christ known. And so, Spirit of God, empower me. When is the last time you asked for this? Again, I think this is one of the reasons some of us are living such weak, powerless Christian lives right now. We don't ever ask for the power that the Spirit of God has for us. And you're asking for that power? is your humble recognition that you don't possess it on your own. I can't do this. I can't pull that off. Holy Spirit, I need the power that only you provide. And when you ask him, listen, when you ask him for that power, you're not asking for more of him. You are asking for him to have more of you. And the more he gets of you, the more you begin to experience his presence and his power in your life. 
And the greatest example, my friends, that we see of that truth in all the Bible, it's in Jesus Christ himself. We see it in Christ. In verse 34, this is where John closes. He says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And that phrase, Son of God, that you see there, um, it can also be translated chosen of God. And a lot of Bible scholars believe that's the better translation. Chosen of God. My Bible says son of God, but again, the favored one is is chosen of God. And that language actually takes us back to the book of Isaiah, to these prophecies that were written about Christ 700 years before his birth. And and I just want to read a couple. Isaiah 42.1, behold my servant who who I uphold, here it is, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And so here's John the Baptist going, that's him. The chosen one that God sent into the world, the one on whom God put his spirit, the savior, the king, the Messiah. It's Jesus and I've seen it, and I've borne witness to it. And just in case anyone thought our guy, John the Baptist, was confused, at the very start of his ministry, Jesus confirmed that this was him. There's this great story, and and you should read it sometime, in Luke chapter four, where Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth, and he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he goes and he grabs out the scroll of Isaiah. And he opens it up and he, he makes his way all the way down to where Isaiah 61, what we know as Isaiah 61 would start. And then Jesus, I can just picture it, like all these people are waiting to see what he's gonna say and <clears throat> clears his throat and he goes, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he just reads all of these things that would be true about him and his ministry. And he rolls that thing back up hands it to the attendant, and he goes, and he sits down, and all eyes are on him, and then he says, oh, and by the way, today that scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's him. It's him. And in light of who he is, the only right response is for us to behold him. To behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Man, if you have shown up to church today at any of our locations, or or maybe you're watching online and you have not believed, there's never been a moment in your life when you've given your life to Jesus, you have to behold him today because he is the only one who can take away your sin. You can't take it away. Nobody else and nothing else can take it away. Only Jesus Christ can take it away. And when you believe in him, give your life to him, this is what he does. He removes your sin from you, forgives you of all sin, past, present, and future, puts you back in right relationship with God, and then he immerses you with his spirit so that you have power to be who God put you on planet earth to be. You have to behold him. And then believers in Christ look the same is true for you. If you're a believer in the room today, here's my question. You really want to be like Jesus? Do you you really? Don't just give the church answer. Do you really at a heart level want to be like Jesus?
If so, you have to behold it. Because you become like that which you behold. Beholding is becoming. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that when we behold Jesus, the Spirit of God transforms us into that same image, his image, and he transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. So if you want to be like him, you have to behold him. The reason some of us aren't becoming like him is because we're beholding other things in his place. But instead of getting out of the bed in the morning and beholding Jesus Christ in his word, we behold Facebook and Instagram and the news and there's a reason some of y'all are so angry and depressed and you want to fight all the time. There's a reason some of y'all keep buying into all the crazy conspiracy theories that the world is selling you. You become like that which you behold. You tracking with me? You want to become like Christ? You behold him in his word. You behold him in prayer. You behold him in worship. You set your sights on who he is so that the spirit of God can make you more like him. And so as we close today, we're going to behold him right now. The band is going to come, and, and they're going to sing this great song called Behold the Lamb. We've sang it before, so a lot of you should know it. And we're just going to turn our gaze toward him, and we're going to sing with all of our hearts and celebrate him. I want to invite you to come and, and to pray. If you need to get out of your seats at any location, come and kneel. These carpets are here for you. Just come and, and just get alone in the presence of the Lord and behold him. Communion's available if you want to take it and behold him by eating and drinking. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond, okay? Father God, we thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who gives us power by immersing us in the Holy Spirit. And God, as we behold him over these next several minutes, our prayer is that you'd come and work in this place. Spirit of God, come move in power. Do things in our midst that only you can do. And as we behold Christ, God, we're just asking that you would change us and make us a little bit more like him. That, that, that degree of glory in our lives would just tick up a notch. That we'd walk out these doors just looking a little more like our Lord and Savior. And so, God, this time is yours. Our lives are yours. Come and have your way in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.